This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Welcome to Water Cooler. My name's Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Today I'm delighted to welcome back John Anderson. We've heard from John Anderson not so long ago when he gave the John Howard lecture back in December. Many of you would have seen that. It was a lecture which gave me a lot to think about over the summer, but something else has happened since then which has given me a lot to think about, and that's uh, John Anderson standing for pre-selection for Senate. John, welcome back, and are you completely stark staring bonkers? (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Perhaps you're stark raving bonkers for having me back on. Um, (laughs) Look, I am motivated by a profound belief that we are living in very dangerous times and I should at least offer to put my hand up to serve again if people think that experience and perspective, I don't claim to be brilliant, that's not the point, but experience and perspective and, um, you know, including, I think, knowing what stability looks like in an age that's forgotten may be of value to the party uh, and therefore to the government and the nation. And I'm glad that others in the democratic tradition will hear my case and rule on it. I'm happy to put myself in the hands of the central councillors. Uh, you know, I've had my my day at high level office, but I do think the Senate ought to be a place of very serious and sober review uh, and examination of where the nation's going and consideration of where we ought to be going. And unfortunately, I think particularly in the, the last couple of decades, increasingly the Senate has become a blockage and a hindrance to the country grappling with the great problems before it, not a help. Yes, it's a bit like the Suez Canal right now, isn't it? It needs somebody to go in and shift that great big boat. Maybe you're that person. John, we'll come on to that later. There's a lot to talk about there. First, though, let me ask, for those of you who are watching on, on, uh, on YouTube, others will be listening to this on a podcast, but those of you watching on YouTube, uh, John, that picture behind you, that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is that a Sunderland flying boat in that picture? Yes, it is. Uh, I'm at my sister-in-law's home, uh, and my father-in-law, who died last year, he was an Australian Navy uh, officer, uh, had that painted in commemoration of his oldest brother, who was flying for the Australian Air Force, but out of Britain, Sunderland's on anti-submarine and convoy uh, uh, duties and undertaking rescues. This was off the west coast of Africa in 1942. They received a mayday call from a steamer that had been sunk by or was being attacked by two German U-boats. He he was uh, sent out to try and find them. He did so at about one o'clock in the afternoon. He was able to land on a swell, which apparently was no mean feat, uh, and they picked up 46 survivors, far in excess of what the plane was meant to carry. He kept the engines doped up, so to speak. Two of them were actually ticking over, I think, in the picture. Machine gunner on each wing in case the U-boats resurfaced. And they took off, took five miles of wave hopping before they got off the sea, and uh, then... um, uh, or it was the highest number of people that had ever been packed into an aircraft, the crew plus 46 survivors, and they made it to safety. It was deeply celebrated in Britain at the time. Unfortunately, Colin, his name was Colin Robertson, uh, took off exactly three years later, just before the end of the war on another mission and was never found again. And the painting is in his honour. 
Yeah, the, the, the courage of that generation just uh, amazes us and inspires us still, I think, doesn't it? And it should inspire us to want to, as the Chinese ironically have it, if you want peace, prepare for war. We should be vigilant. We should be alert when there's a great need for urgency as we look at a very troubled and uncertain world around us. I am worried that we've, we're still not approaching the issues that are coming at us with the necessary urgency. Well, I wanted, I mean, most of this, this discussion, I think we're going to be looking forward, but if we just keep on that historical theme just for a second, we, 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 it's an important anniversary this year, 20 years since the election of John Howard and the John Howard government. You served for 10 years in Cabinet. You were six years as Deputy PM. The usual question under this circumstance would be, why were you so good as a government? I might be a bit counterintuitive and ask you, um, what was your hardest, what was your most, uh, your most troubling moment during that period? Uh, 25 years. Look, the toughest was undoubtedly uh, being one of the five people chaired occasionally by Howard, making it six. Uh, on the Expenditure Review Committee, the terrible business of saying, no, uh, we have to cut expenditure or drop that program or minister go away, pull your department into line. At the same time as I was facing enormous challenges and pressures to cut in areas that I thought would damage rural Australia and had to take a stand against my own friends on some issues. Uh, but the most difficult moment for me was undoubtedly I was acting PM on the night of... Um, uh, in September 2001, the Twin Towers. Uh, that, that was the most frightening moment because we just didn't know what it all meant and where it might land. We didn't even know for a little while whether the Prime Minister was safe. I mean, every government gets something wrong, even a great government like that one. Um, looking back, what would you say, what was your biggest regret? Something you did that you shouldn't have done or something you didn't do that you should have done? Uh, look, I, I've said publicly that I think, and Peter Walsh said the same thing in Confessions of a Failed Finance Minister. He was probably the Labor Party's best finance minister. I, I don't think I clearly enough stood, uh, understood and maybe didn't clearly enough try and argue the case for uh, spending, even if it's debt financed, on things that create wealth versus things that simply absorb wealth, recurrent expenditure. Uh, and I do think that we may have been wise to have spent a little more in those early years, not been quite so worried uh, to have spent a bit more on high-quality infrastructure. We were right to preserve defence expenditure, uh, but perhaps in that other area, and perhaps in R&D, those are the areas where I think maybe we could have got it a, a, little, bit, uh, a little bit better. Uh, in terms of personal regrets, my own is that uh, I didn't pay more attention to foreign affairs and Australia's place in the world while I had the opportunity. I was very domestically focused because I felt the National Party in our early years had gotten into a bit of trouble because Tim Fisher was always overseas and I was locked up in the Expenditure Review Committee. We weren't getting our message out. And I just wish I'd spent a bit more time uh, on, on the very important matter of foreign relationships. Let me take you back to your, your John Howard lecture in December. Uh, this has been watched and listened to thousands of times and read. It was a very important speech, I thought. Let me quote a bit of it back to you, John. John Howard understood deeply that a major task for a democratic leader is to foster unity and a common sense of purpose and destiny wherever possible amongst the people being led. 
The nation in the end is no more and no less than the sum total of individuals who make it up. And leading a democratic nation forward is only possible to the extent that trust and cooperation and a commitment to the broader good, good as well as one's self-interests are extant in the people. Now, normally at the beginning of a speech like that, the John Howard Lecture, I would have taken that as a way of uh, praising the great man himself, but I think you were setting up something very important in your speech there, that, that John Howard knew about the importance of unity and a common sense of purpose, and that seems much harder to achieve these days. The Western world has become so polarised uh, and so fractured that, uh, in fact, the greatest blockages to us taking the nation forward in terms of good policy is now fact cultural. We're so divided. And we've almost reached the point, it seems to me, where we're like a, a large extended family on its way to a picnic down by uh, the river so busy fighting and tearing itself apart that it's oblivious to the fact that it's walking into the jaws of a real crocodile. We seem so divided we're not able to see our way forward and to understand where it is that we really need to be focusing our common identity, regardless of where we live or our gender or whatever, as Australians wanting to live in a country that's free and and prosperous. And I, I think this is a real worry. And, and the other aspect of it is a lot of this is happening because we don't know our history. So we're open, our young people especially open to what Frank Ferruti calls in his book Boundaries, this attempt to delegitimize the past so that young people feel that they are that, that they're their inheritors of and are living in a society that is rotten to the core and would be better overthrown. And I find that deeply concerning because it feeds this tribalisation, call it identity politics, um, and it has brought us, if I, if I stop and think about it, if I was a Martian looking in, I'd say, what's the matter with these Australians? They're the most fortunate country in the world, but men seem to be at war with women and women with men. Um, uh, apparently, they're a terribly racist bunch. Uh, it's the worst thing you can do, but everybody does it all the time, is the ultimate denigration of calling someone else a racist. Uh, and over and above that, there's intergenerational warfare. Now, in all of those areas, we can improve our performance, but we seem to have got ourselves to the point of, of an absolute lather where we've lost sight of the need to pull together. And as a subset of that, we've lost trust in all of our institutions and the people that fill them. I find it, as for an immigrant like me, John, um, it's deeply troubling. I mean, I came to this country, what... Uh, 32 years ago, really excited about the place. I mean, I love Britain, but I loved this place even more. It was a country that really was free. It was a, 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 a very egalitarian country. You know, Jack's as good as his master. Nobody had tickets on themselves. Uh, and it was a land of opportunity for all. Uh, and, and yet, somehow, uh, we have many people now who seem to think that this is an irredeemably bad country with a past that it needs to be uh, ashamed of and continually apologizing uh, and that it is in you know apart from the united states perhaps the epitome of a bad society i, I just it just i don't know that just disturbs me deep in my soul because that's never the country it's not the country i came to it's not the country i live in now and it's not the country that i reckon 70 percent of australians in the middle 
recognise or want to live in either, and they want their place back again. And, you know, what, what disturbs me about the extraordinary pylons that we're seeing now is that good people can't make sense of it and don't know how to tackle it, don't know. You know, they say to me, what can we do? This is not us. I don't recognise this place. And, of course, we've had issues to deliver, but to, to improve on, but we've made progress. And why is it that the more progress we make on addressing some of the, uh, the, 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 the things that have not been so good in our society, the more it seems that, in fact, the, the screams get louder and you're accused of worse behaviour than ever. It's, this is part of the mantra, I think, of this sort of whole critical theory approach to life. You can never concede that our society's made progress because the minute you do, you imply that it has the ability to take forward debates and improve things that are not right. And that doesn't suit the mantra. If, if your mantra is we're so rotten to the core, we should completely blow ourselves up and reinvent ourselves. Now, of course, these people who want to tear down the cultural house that we live in or what's left of it, don't seem to be offering anything else. And I think the great challenge we ought to be putting to the hyperventilating haters who dominate so much of the public debate is just what sort of society do you really want us to live in? But this goes back to your, your point, doesn't it? We just don't understand our history. We're not teaching history properly. Is this too late? I mean, we've got a whole generation now who've left school, left, left university without a basic knowledge of Australian history and where we fit in the world. Is it too late to win back that generation? Well, as Churchill said to Thompson, his bodyguard, after he'd just been sworn in with the Prime Minister, as Prime Minister and had been meeting with the King, I fear it may be too late, Thompson. Uh, but he went on to show that it wasn't. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, really single-handedly took Britain into the war. Uh, and Britain was the only country that was there at the beginning of the war and at the end of the war. It took a stand on principle. We have to fight our case. And I am enormously encouraged. I hope there's, you know, I suppose there aren't, but I hope there's a few educators out there uh, who, um, who are responsible for some of this mess who might hear me say this because I'm sure your experience is the same. If I had a dollar for every time a young Australian has told me, we know that a lot of what we're being fed in class and university is bulldust. We know that. I had a young man in Canberra the other day say to me, he reckons, he said to me, I reckon 90% of the people in one or two of my classes know that we're being fed ideologically charged um, uh, propaganda. We can see through it. People are not dumb. The problem is how do you then get them informed? But again, I'm encouraged because of the number of young people I meet who are saying, I'm looking for a better way. Uh, and, and here's another rub. Our culture has gone to a place where we don't seem to want to respect experience and the wisdom of the years, whereas every successful culture I'm aware of has always respected the learning of the years. One of the marks, I think, uh, uh, of a conservative is that they don't believe that everybody has gone before them has been useless, hopeless and knew nothing. Um, uh, I think that uh, you've got a, a great hunger there uh, to, uh, to, for, for, for mentoring, for insight, for a better way because I reckon thinking young people know that we are facing real challenges. I, I really do think that and I'm cheered up by it. Uh, mm. And to fill the gaps in, the gaps in their information, so they know they've got the gaps, a lot mm. of them. And that's part of our task now is to go and retrofit 
an understanding of what's been wrong as well as what has been right in our culture and why we ought to stand to defend it because in the end it's the most capable mechanism we've found, this democratic system of ours, for self-correcting when we've got it right and for creating an environment where the maximum number of people can flourish to the greatest degree possible. But we are at that point, aren't we, where, where a lot of people, ideologically driven people, but not just people with a deep sense of ideology, just people that emerge from university these days. It seems to be a sense that we're at year zero, that everything that came before was, was a result of know-nothing Neanderthals like you and I, John. Uh, we don't have to go back to deep history even. Even in recent history, there's been no improvement. There's no recognition, say, for instance, of the great changes and great opportunities that there are for women now that there weren't, uh, you know, before World War II. Uh, you know, we're at that point where, you know, and let's take the Prime Minister, you know, he, in this, this whole current debate over, over women and the treatment of women, it's as if, you know, no achievements had ever been made up until now and uh, now is the time to throw everything away and start again. That's a immensely, uh, I mean, I, it's encouraging to see people wanting to make the world better. But that idea of that once in a lifetime revolution, that scares me. What about you? Well, it, it, it worries me hugely and I'm, I'm struck by the enormous hypocrisy at the heart of a lot of this. Now, let's say at the outset that uh, not a whiff of inappropriate behaviour is ever attached to the Prime Minister in terms of his personal life. Not a whiff. Nothing. So let he who is without sin cast the first stone. There's a lot of people throwing a lot of stones at the moment who are not in a position where they can say, I've set an example for my kids of the sort that the Prime Minister has. So I want to say that about Scott Morrison. A lot of what is happening is grossly unfair. Let me then say that the culture of Parliament House, and it was uh, sometimes pretty rough, but it's obviously deteriorated to an extraordinary degree and it needs to be addressed. Of course it should be a place that's safe for women. This is about basic respect. We've lost an understanding in our culture of the intrinsic value and worth of every human being and to use what should be the most wonderful and intimate expression of love and commitment to another person in a way that is violent and disrespectful and hateful and objectifying in terms of its basic nature is something we ought to wake up to ourselves about and say well there are aspects of the so-called sexual revolution which have backfired very badly we've divorced you know, something that should be joyful and rich and meaningful from relationship too often. But having said that, here's the rub. Those who think that hatred and a parliament is the answer to this problem, creating war between the sexes or war between good people who in their own personal lives have behaved impeccably, need really be fully exposed. And Anne Webster, I think, displayed extraordinary graciousness when she talked of her own experiences in the Parliament House, shocking, unfortunate, uh, but said that the uh, the personally offender, as I understand the story, apologised sincerely and she said, I accept that apology and that is the model for moving forward. And one of our great problems, you see, is that we're very judgmental and very unforgiving in the Stone Age. And, of course, if you can't forgive or can't be forgiven, you might at least hope that you might be or your 
crimes might be forgotten, but social media means that you they're never forgotten. So anything could be brought up against you, even an allegation. And in an age that's so committed to feeling rather than objectivity, an age of principles like innocent until proven guilty, incredible injustices can follow. Again, why are we rejecting what we've learned over the centuries? Well, you, 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 you take us through this in, in your John Howard lecture. You go back through, uh, I think you draw a lot on the book by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's Cynical Theories, where they have uh, a very thorough analysis of what we now call woke. Three elements to it, or three key elements. One thing about this woke culture is that it sees society as groups, as classes, rather than individuals. It sees life as a continual struggle. It's about power relations. And finally, all inequality of outcome is not because of different abilities or different circumstances, but because of prejudice. I think this notion that we see people as members of groups rather than individuals mm -hmm. seems to go through, cut through some of the issues we've got now. So uh, individuals in this melodrama, if I can dare call it that in Parliament, are not responsible for their own behaviour, they're responsible as members of groups. Uh, the, the, the Prime Minister uh, can never say the right words to appease these, uh, these ultra-feminist uh, agitators because he's a man, because he's a, a man of a certain age. Uh, that seems to be creeping in insidiously to the debate, and meaning that it's impossible, really, for people like uh, Scott Morrison ever to say something that's going to satisfy them in this situation. Well, th th this is at the heart of identity politics. You see, we attach virtue uh, uh, to um, uh, causes and groups rather than in the classic way, looking at individuals and, uh, uh, and attaching virtue or, or seeing virtue in terms of, you know, the classic Greco-Roman sort of um, prudence, uh, courage, justice, temperance, moderation, and then the Christian values of, um, uh, of, of love, faith and hope. Um, so you have to then, you get into all sorts of trouble once you remove an understanding that each of us should be seeking to be people of character and recognising that we're a mixture of good and bad and that none of us get it right all the time, none of us get it wrong all the time. Uh, so instead of recognising that about ourselves as individuals and therefore being able to accept that somebody else sometimes gets things wrong but is worthy of respect and can be forgiven, we build ourselves up with our identity group, self-reinforced to say we are right and we are the forces of good and we can never concede a backward foot step and you are bad. Uh, and to we've now reached this point where, you know, as we talked there, you mentioned the speech, where you've got this major push from the critical theorists, which is so intellectually shallow, it's ridiculous, uh, that says that, well, all white men are racist, you only have to look at the numbers. At Azorus, that's what it says. They occupy too many high positions, they earn too much of the money. Now, um, I'm all for people having real opportunities, but the first mistake here is that people have very different aspirations in life. They don't all want to be obsessed with making money on the one hand or powering, climbing power ladders or whatever on the other. There's, there's an element of totalitarianism about this, you know. It, 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 we, this is where the whole idea of quotas come from. We will force these issues and you end up in a place of totalitarianism. What are you going to do? 
there, you know, 25% of the uh, children in the classroom are left-handed. Uh, therefore, there will be a quota of uh, 25% of the children, um, uh, you know, in, in, in something simply because of their physical characteristics. Otherwise, we're racist or we're against people with left-handedness. And it's nonsense. But John, um, you've, you've just suggested a whole lot of things going on in the modern culture and political context that would argue that perhaps you shouldn't be going back into politics now. Um, but but you, you are, you're, you're, you're putting yourself up for pre-selection for the National Party in New South Wales. Uh, there's a good chance, I'm told, it's not in the bag, but there's a good chance you might even get it. You might find yourself in, in the Senate. I suspect you're not doing this uh, out of uh, ambition, I mean, because you, you've already been Deputy Prime Minister, one of the most successful Deputy Prime Ministers. Um, you were a very successful cabinet minister. Uh, so why are you doing it? Uh, I, I feel genuinely duty-bound to just offer to the New South Wales Central Council of my own party to serve. Uh, I think I can help add some ballast to the party. Uh, that's not to be critical of it. It just says I think I can add a bit of extra weight at a critical time. And I think the party is critical in terms of the architecture of Australian politics. I think if the side of politics that I believe in is to succeed, the National Party in these difficult times must strive to give of its utmost. I believe every political party should do the same. We've got to lift ourselves out of our inclination to want to brawl with one another and set our sights on leading the Australian people forward through what I think is going to be a very difficult time. And... Uh, look, it's a very unusual thing for me to do. It's not a lifestyle choice, but I just deeply feel that all of us now need to ask ourselves, what can we do? What might we be able to help with? Not what would I like to do? Because I'm not sure that option will be open to us if we don't wake up as a country anyway. We'll have options forced on us that, that, that remove choice and restrict our options and our wonderful way of living. And that would be a tragedy. And I think of uh, my own father lining up in 1940, May 1940, after Dunkirk, and everyone realised that we really were back at war. Now, I don't think he would have enjoyed enlisting at all. He volunteered. He went within an ace of losing his life. He wasn't expected to live, but somehow he pulled through. Um, but he went off because he felt he had to do his bit. And uh, that's never left me. It's never left me. And I realise now with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, how much it's shaped me. And I meet people all the time who say, I'm so worried about my country, but I don't know what I can do. So I thought, well, I will simply offer. It's up to central council. That's the beauty of democracy. They might say, you know, John, no, there's, there's better things you can do or there's somebody else who can do better than you. But at least I've offered. I won't die wondering whether I could have moved that dial a little bit. Uh, you know, in 15 years or 20 years' time. Our ancestors, as you've alluded to, uh, took the responsibility upon themselves to fight for our freedom, fight for our democracy, in, uh, principally in the two world wars, but in other world wars too, in other wars too, I should say. Do you, do you really think that what we're facing now in terms of the threat to our nation and its values uh, is as serious as it was at those crucial moments in the 20th century? I can only say that, yes, I do. Yes, I do. 
Uh, you know, you go back a hundred and you go back to the very early days of Australia, a little nation of four and a half, five million people. They looked at the troubles brewing in Europe, and and we've got a troubled world now. Uh, there are there are several major trouble spots, any of which could blow up, and encourage then further participation in the trouble by other countries. Uh, and this little nation of four and a half, five million people on a bipartisan basis said, "Look out." We need to get ourselves ready, prepare, prepare, prepare. And against the wishes of the British, Nick, they ordered up a tier two Navy, sailed through the heads in 1913. It had this wacky and extraordinary technology called a couple of submarines. They were going to buy four more, but they didn't arrive uh, in time to secure our nation during an unsettled time from 1914 to 1918. And we celebrate rightly what our brave young men did in Gallipoli and the Western Front. We often overlook that we secured the Southwest Pacific as our homeland first. And I just want to use every avenue I can, every every forum, every soapbox, every political place, every whatever media to say, look, we've just got to turn our attention to the fact that the world is a dangerous place. The West is deeply indebted. What Biden is doing in the US is risking hyperinflation. I understand that this latest stimulus package of another two trillion, not a couple of trillion dollars, I mean, you know, a trillion here and a trillion there, and soon you're talking serious money. That sort of money they're pumping into the economy uh, is around, represents around three times the estimated economic damage of COVID 19. Now that, and you know how bad that was in the United or has been in the United States. This risks not just inflation, but in my view, possibly hyperinflation. It will also increase asset prices yet again, even if we don't get hyperinflation and interest rates rising, which would be a disaster given our levels of indebtedness and will flow back to us and global impacts. Um, and so we need to prepare, prepare, prepare. At the very least, just on that, one division that does worry me is between younger and older Australians. Those who have assets, of course, are getting wealthier all the time. Younger ones are finding it harder and harder to get into assets because of the inflation in assets or asset prices. Let's talk about that because I think one of the dynamics in politics, one of the sharp dynamics at the moment, is the difference in views, difference in economic interests, difference in outlook between the, uh, if we say generally the baby boomer plus generation and the post baby boomers. Uh, you know, when you get to things like um, women's issues, when you get to things like even climate change, in the polling you see quite a marked divide between the two. Is that what we're facing? Is it the sort of the end of the road for dinosaurs like us and the coming of a new generation? Or is it about key values? I think key values uh, last forever. Uh, and you ignore them at your peril. Uh, I really do. And when it comes to economic management, the reality is that uh, so far as I am aware, never, ever has the ongoing printing of money and uh, never-ending cheap credit ended in anything other than tears. We do need to get our budget back into some sort of order. We've fired off a lot of shots rightly. I mean, I absolutely admire what, uh, the government has done federally to keep the economy going. But as we pick up ahead of any other country, and gee, the Prime Minister and Josh and the Deputy Prime Minister and the Chief ought to be given credit for this, enormous credit for it. We've just been through COVID-19 where every day the obsession in the media, to, to you know, an admirable degree, admirable degree was the well-being of Australians. Well, 
the well-being of Australians in the future will depend on us now getting back and focusing on who can best reconstruct the economy, get the place growing. Again, the senators behaved like a kindergarten school here and holding the country back on some needed industrial relations reform. That's the sort of thing we just can't afford anymore in Australia. We cannot afford it if we care about our kids. You know, the printing money, endless cheap credit, the new money theory, monetary theory, the idea that uh, we don't have to worry about fiscal restraint anymore. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I do not believe for a moment that it won't end in tears. It's already what we've been doing over the last 10 years since the great financial crisis. Seen those who have assets increase their wealth enormously, while those who do not have assets um, you know, can't get their first foot on the rudder, on, on, on the bottom rung. Uh, and that's a, a real divide between younger and older people in the West and in Australia. So we can't ignore the lessons of history. I, I, I just think that this is part of the nonsense of thinking that there's nothing to be learnt from the past. There's everything to be learnt from the past. And just as a military trainee learns the history of battles, an economist should learn the lessons of history uh, before we send ourselves over a cliff. John, the National Party... Um the most, uh, the one side of the most stable coalition uh, in Western democracy, I think, being uh, nearly 100 years old, that coalition, in one form or another. What is the part that the National Party plays in that coalition? Why is it so important? I think it's the natural repository, and I think this is, uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this over the last few months, and it's reinvigorated my my enthusiasm and determination to see the party take its place uh, to the greatest degree possible in the architecture of Australian politics. It's the natural repository of something that I think is incredibly dear, the sort of pragmatic, values-driven, common sense and a good and sound patriotism that's been part of the Australian rural and regional psyche. And I think Australians value that way beyond the regions and deep into our suburbs. And I think we need to recapture it. And I think the party's the ideal body to stand that ground. But in many ways, of course, going into Parliament, well, I worry anyway, that you may, be, you may feel gagged, if you like. You may feel less free to speak out. I mean, you're... What you've been doing through your interviews, your podcasts, through your op-eds, it's been an immense contribution, I think, to public thought in this country. Are you still... Well, one, will you have the time to do that same uh, thing? And, and secondly, will you have the freedom, uh, should you be successful, to become a senator? I think it's a good question, and you're not the first person who's asked those very things. And I must say, look, I really appreciate people who say, look, I like what you've been doing. I've been amazed at how many people in the National Party, actually, as I've embarked on this, have said, oh, we follow what, you've, what you say and the people you talk to. Uh, two comments. I would intend to try and keep doing those because I think they're very valuable. Uh, and Well, people tell me they're very valuable, and I enjoy it. And it keeps me in touch with what the best thinkers around the world are thinking. It's one of the things I want to bring to the table so that I'm there in that old party room that I love so much and I can say, actually, on that topic there, you know, Douglas Murray said something that's really important. Um, I'll pull it out of the podcast. Or, you know, um, Nick, Nick Cater and I were talking about something the other day and he made a point that's invaluable, <laughs> if I can put it that way. 
On the question of being able to um, uh, speak, and an another member of the National Party wisely said, raised that issue when I was talking to her the other day. Uh, how do you do it in a way that doesn't make you look like a maverick or destructive? Well, I can only say everything I stand for is around the idea of reunifying, and I would be always seeking to be constructive in what I said. I don't want to be constrained in it, but I would. Sometimes I might try and seek some room for our MPs to move. I mean, I understand. I think that one of the, one of the big things I'm trying to say is that we, the Australian people, we voters need to give our leaders when we've installed them some room to move. And I want to be out there, just as you and I are doing now, arguing the case. Give our leaders the room to lead. It's no good just saying they're not leading if we can't let them. If we're so divided, we just flatten them the minute they try and do something good. The Prime Minister's getting flattened when, in fact, all the raw numbers tell you he's got the country in better shape than any other Western country I can think of at the moment. I mean, are we wise to destroy him or to allow others to destroy him, try to destroy him? Well, John, wish you all the best. Uh, uh, I wish uh, National Party uh, voters all the best as they steady their hands against the box with your name next to it. Um, and we look forward to having you back on Water Cooler before too long. Very pleasure, as always, you. been listening to the Water Cooler podcast coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. To help us build an audience for this great free content, then we'd value your feedback. You can email me, Nick Cater, at watercooler at menziesrc.org. You can also become one of the growing number of people who help support this work by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre. You can become a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org, menziesrc.org. Org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.